I'd like to start this evening by reading the first two paragraphs of the very first discourse the Buddha gave. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Varanasi in the deer park at Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five thus. Bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial, and the pursuit and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And what, bhikkhus, is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. I like remembering that the first discourse of the Buddha, which is often remembered as being the discourse on the Four Noble Truths, which it is, that it begins with this enjoinder to practice the Eightfold Path, that it is this Eightfold Path that leads to liberation. I think of the Eightfold Path as the practical side of the Buddhist teaching, or one of the practical sides of the Buddhist teaching. He, he really, the, the, the teaching that he offers is really a very practical one, and the Eightfold Path are his prescription for us to come to peace, to knowledge, to understanding for ourselves. And as he says in this initial aspect of the discourse, this leads to Nibbana, freedom, freedom from suffering, freedom from dukkha. This is what I would like to explore tonight with you. A little bit about the Eightfold Path, just as a reminder for us of 
what these eight aspects are. But you all have probably heard many teachings on the Eightfold Path. And the key piece I'd like to explore tonight is my understanding, a bit of my understanding about how this path actually does its work on us. If we engage with it, if we practice these teachings, if we practice right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, that this will lead us to peace. So the Eightfold Path, instead of eight practices, is sometimes divided or broken up into three aspects. An aspect or a a section of the path related to wisdom, a, a section of the path related to ethical conduct, and a section of the path related to cultivating our minds. So the The wisdom aspect of the path comprises right understanding and right intention. The ethical conduct aspect of the path comprises right speech, right action, right livelihood. And the mental cultivation aspect of the path comprises wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So this typical ordering of the path, beginning with wise understanding, right understanding, and right intention... The path begins with some kind of wisdom, some kind of orientation towards what we are trying to do. And in this case, the orientation that the Buddha offers us is an orientation of how we can free ourselves from dukkha. So this initial aspect, the, the beginning stages of the Eightfold Path, are the beginning of understanding this dukkha, which both Akinchino and I have spoken of quite a bit in this month, beginning to understand what this dukkha is, what this stress, this dissatisfaction, suffering, unreliability, what it is and how it's caused. And as we've explored the dukkha, the way we struggle in our lives largely comes about because we are resisting the way things are or we're trying to hold on to things to keep them the way we'd like them to be. We think, if only I could arrange my world so that I could have everything I'd like, get rid of everything I don't like. Endlessly we engage in this activity. We don't, I think we don't really think that any one thing is going to do it for us forever. 
But we do believe that there's some way that we can just keep arranging, keep getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, and that somehow we can kind of hold it together on this teetering edge and have happiness that way. Rainer Maria Rilke kind of expresses the condition we find ourselves in. An excerpt from his eighth Duino elegy. And we, spectators, always, everywhere, turn towards the world of objects. It fills us. We arrange it. It breaks down. We rearrange it, then break down ourselves. The Buddha found, recognized that this endless rearranging, this endless trying to construct, create, hold on to things we like, get rid of things we don't like, this very process is this process of the arranging itself, the, the mind that thinks it needs to arrange, this is the source of this dukkha. And so the wise understanding, wise understanding begins with a recognition, begins with a, perhaps even just a hearing of this, that the way we suffer, the, the way we end up dissatisfied in our lives is largely about how our minds are working. This idea that we can arrange things to suit ourselves. So initially, wise understanding begins with an intellectual understanding. I talked about this last week some, the three aspects of wisdom, that we begin by hearing knowledge, hearing wisdom, taking it in, and then reflecting on it. How do I understand this? Does this make sense to me? So this wise understanding is largely about understanding dukkha, understanding what it might mean to recognize that our minds create this. So the primary understanding, the primary definition of this wise understanding is that we begin to recognize, understand the truth of the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering. That suffering has a cause, that it is possible for this suffering to come to an end, and there is a path for that. So this teaching of the Four Noble Truths really addresses dukkha, the problem the Buddha was trying to solve. It addresses dukkha. It addresses the cause of dukkha. And understanding that there's this cause and effect relationship in our experience, when we engage in certain activities of mind and body, certain results happen. The Four Noble Truths expresses this cause and effect relationship. As we engage in activity, that 
rearranging activity, inevitably we end up suffering. Either because we're not getting what we want, we're not able to succeed in that process of rearranging and suffering hits us immediately. Or we do get what we want. For a while we have a sense of happiness. I figured it out. This is right. This is it. And yet the inevitability of the decay, the ending, the dissolution of the conditions will lead to struggle, suffering, sadness, loss. And so the Four Noble Truths acknowledges this cause and effect relationship and the understanding is that if we let go of the cause of suffering, it is this very letting go of the cause of suffering that leads us to the ending of suffering. And the path, the Eightfold Path, is the path that we can cultivate that will lead us to the ending of suffering. And so when we hear this teaching, perhaps it hits us at a moment. For myself, hearing something of these teachings at a moment when I really had kind of hit bottom, there was a sense of there's somebody out there that seems to have a sense that there's a way out of this suffering. Why don't I try this? Even though I didn't really understand, even though I didn't really have a sense of how it would work, there was hearing the, hearing the teaching, having some sense of confidence in what I was reading, what I was hearing, that this is possible, this freedom is possible. This engages intention, the intention to act, the intention to step onto the path, to begin the practices. So this is wise intention, the second aspect, the wisdom aspect of the path. So we find ourselves interested in, exploring, engaging with practices. And the next aspect of the Eightfold Path offers us some fundamental grounding practices in ethical conduct. And again, because of the Fundamental exploration is around non-harming, is is around not uh, creating dukkha, leading away from struggle, suffering. It makes sense that this ethical conduct is oriented towards non-harming. If we find ourselves engaged in activity that's harming, we are creating suffering, whether for ourselves or for others. And so this aspect of the Eightfold Path encourages us to engage in behaviors that are skillful. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. I think of the ethical conduct aspect of the Eightfold Path as harmonizing our relationships with the world. Also harmonizing our relationships with ourselves. Because as that sutta that Akinchino read some days ago, the sutta of the acrobats, the young 
little girl acrobat saying, by protecting, you watch out for yourself and I'll watch out for myself and that way we'll protect each other. And the Buddha took it a step further, recognizing that yes, when we protect ourselves, we protect others. When we protect others, we protect ourselves. Protecting others through this conduct of the Eightfold Path, through wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, we protect ourselves. We protect ourselves from remorse. We protect ourselves from unwholesome states of mind through acting skillfully. So we explore this possibility of engaging peacefully in the world, living with a heart that inclines towards non-harming. The last three factors of the Eightfold Path in the mental development section of the path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, The fact that mental development is considered part of the path, it's it's really necessary because of the, this mental development is necessary because it is in our minds that suffering is created in the first place. This is a real shift of perspective. Before we start training, before we meet the practice, before we meet this teaching, I think very few of us would question that having what we want makes us happy. So this mental training is about reorienting ourselves around where happiness actually comes from. And it takes some training. So this mental cultivation, this aspect of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. We look at our minds, we turn and explore what's going on, how our patterns work. We begin to see this dukkha, we begin to see dukkha arising with the instruction to understand dukkha as the orientation for wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. This is how wisdom comes into this aspect of the path. Our instructions for practice, how we apply wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration is directly related to wisdom. Understand suffering. Look at your dukkha. See how it's created. understand the cause. We begin through the understanding of our dukkha to really recognize how it's caused, that it is caused in our own minds. This process of applying effort, mindfulness, to our experience gives our mind an education. The organism itself begins to recognize, to learn, that certain patterns of engaging, certain patterns of mind associated with wanting, with greed, with not wanting, with aversion, with confusion, with cloudedness, with misperceiving reality, that these things lead to, or do not lead to well-being. 
And fortunately, our organism wants to go towards well-being. So it starts to let go of those movements in that direction. This very exploration, wise effort, wise mindfulness, applied with this wisdom of the Eightfold Path, begins to lead us towards happiness. And the bringing together of wise effort and wise mindfulness, those two together begins to cultivate wise concentration. Continuity of our attention on our experience is one definition of concentration. And it is that very continuity of mindfulness that begins to reveal how our minds do what they do. How our minds get caught by anger, by frustration. How our minds get caught by desire, by pride. How we get completely confused. And so the mental development, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, are the last three factors of the Eightfold Path, but they lead us back to wisdom. Not just the intellectual understanding, but the experiential recognition. I explored some of this last week, the ways we experience wisdom directly in our practice the shifts of perspective, the seeing the letting go we experience for ourselves and our organism begins to recognize what, is the, what are the things we need to let go of, what are the things we need to cultivate to move towards happiness. And the Buddha pointed to this quite directly. He said, develop concentration. One who is concentrated understands things as they really are. So he's directly pointing to this last factor of the Eightfold Path, wise concentration, as leading to the ability to see clearly. And what does one understand as it really is? One understands as it really is, this is suffering. One understands, as it really is, this is the origin of suffering. One understands, as it really is, this is the cessation of suffering. One understands, as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Develop concentration. One who is concentrated understands things as they really are. So this points to how the Eightfold Path is a cycle. We develop our minds. We cultivate our ethical conduct. We develop our minds. And this supports our being able to see more deeply, which gives us a deeper actual wisdom, an actual meeting of wisdom. So 
So we are living this eightfold path here on retreat. Moment after moment. It's not an abstract thing. Actually, every moment you are here, you are cultivating these factors of the path. Just your presence here is an expression of wise intention, of wise understanding. The fact that you've chosen to come here and engage. When you sit, it's an expression of wise understanding and wise intention. What you are exploring, the way you see things, bringing bringing wisdom to, to bear on your experience, then beginning to see that. This is wise understanding and wise intention. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Sometimes we don't think about how these are actively being cultivated on retreat. When I was in Burma, my teacher gave a Dharma talk. My teacher, Sayada Ujjanaka, gave a Dharma talk about how we were practicing the Eightfold Path in every single moment of our practice. And I found this really inspiring, actually, to to recognize that I am walking the path through being here on retreat. And his explanation of how we were cultivating wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, is that they are, he says, they are fulfilled through abstinence. Primarily, wise speech, wise action are defined in terms of not engaging in specific speech and actions. The precepts that we take reflect many of them. Refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from false speech. Mostly we're silent here. So we fulfill our Why speech through silence? Ujjanaka expressed the livelihood, the wise livelihood, as being the fact that you're here on retreat is that you're living the Dharma livelihood. Essentially, temporary monastics here on retreat. So it's helpful, I think, to recognize that these factors are active in our practice. We don't often think about things when they're absent. They don't land on us too much when they're absent. So it can help to reflect, to recognize, yes, my ethical conduct is being cultivated here. And I see also that there is a wholesome side of the ethical conduct being cultivated as we practice here. The, uh, we're actively cultivating generosity as we engage in our service work here, our, our, our yogi jobs. And this center would not function if you all did not participate in this. The bathrooms wouldn't get cleaned. The floors wouldn't get swept and mopped. The dishes would pile up in the kitchen. It would be a mess. And so as you're engaging in that, and and even just keeping your own room clean, 
is an act of service for the next yogi that will come to take your space. So this is an active cultivation of generosity, of kindness. So reflecting on your service here as being an active cultivation of the path, not just something to finish up and get done with. If you can recall this service aspect, this generosity, kindness, compassion aspect of what we're doing here, it can support your practice. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. This is the most obvious aspect of what we're doing here. Moment to moment. Bringing wise effort infused with wise understanding, wise intention to bear on how we pay attention to our experience. Moment after moment, exploring what's happening now, what's happening now. What's my relationship to this now? So we are doing this, not as an abstraction, but as actual practice. And so what's the point of doing this? When the Buddha expressed it in that first discourse, he says, practicing this leads to peace. Leads to liberation, leads to freedom, to Nibbana. So cultivating the Eightfold Path in kind of some practical ways tends to make us be more contented in our lives. We, we end up having a more easeful life. We have a less reactivity in our lives. So this is a benefit of the Eightfold Path. And yet it's also understood to lead to the deepest kind of peace, not just having a little bit easier time at work or a little bit easier time with relationships, but deeply letting go of the roots of suffering in our minds. So freedom, enlightenment, Nibbana. That word enlightenment is kind of out there in the world. I certainly had encountered it in my 20s before I ever met the teaching of the Buddha. And I had some idea, you know, it's like people talked about enlightenment and it's like I had some idea about what that might be. And it it, it usually, the idea usually involved some kind of, well, mind-blowing something or other. And then, like, this forever after somehow being, like, disconnected from everything. Like, floating around and not, you know, really... I don't know what I thought, but you know, it didn't have much to do with living life, my sense of what enlightenment meant. The Buddha's actual definition of what Nibbana is, 
He says, it's the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of delusion. To me, that's an inspiring definition. You know, it's not... It's not... It doesn't sound to me like it's necessarily disconnected from living life. I could envision living life without those qualities. So to me, this this brings enlightenment right into the world. I'd like to read you a few, two texts on Nibbana. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, Enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared. One aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Visible in this life. To me, that again brings it into the world, into not an abstract, not a transcendent kind of thing. Although, I think it, the, the description here, what Nibbana is, experiences no mental pain and grief. In some ways that sounds transcendent. And yet, we can imagine perhaps, I mean, just even imagine now, what it might be like to experience no mental pain or grief. That's freedom. So since freedom is understood to be the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion, we might, under, we might ask how the Eightfold Path helps us to Let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. How does this path help us come to the end of greed, aversion, and delusion? Greed, aversion, and delusion are sometimes referred to as the three three roots of suffering, the three roots, root kilesa, defilements the three root qualities 
activities in our mind that make us get caught, lead us to suffering, lead us to mental pain and grief. So all of the qualities of mind that put us into suffering are somehow rooted into these three. The commentaries speak about all of those assorted kilesa as having a kind of a layered quality to them. Some of them are obvious, coming out in our behavior, some a little less obvious, coming just into our minds, but not coming into our behavior. So this this is an interesting thing to explore, this teaching from the commentaries. The most obvious form of suffering that we have is a kind of suffering that comes out into our behavior. We act out through our speech, through our, our bodies, we perhaps actively harm somebody, we yell, we lie, we speak harshly, harm with our sexual energy, just ways that we engage when we are not clear, when we are this greed, aversion, and delusion manifest in our bodies. That's the most obvious layer of kilesa. A bit more subtle is the layer of kilesa that rather than manifesting in our behavior, comes into our minds. That, you know, we, we experience hostility, anger, frustration, pride in our minds, but don't necessarily let it out into the world. Now that's a, a subtler layer of, of kilesa, of defilement in our minds. The most subtle layer of Kilesa is said to be what's called, it's got a, a, the, the term, translated term is latent tendency or underlying tendency. And this is, I think this is all familiar to you. There's a way that some of the patterns that we have, some of the most common ways that we get caught for myself, anger was one of those. I had a strong habit of anger. And it wasn't always operating. It wasn't always present. I wasn't always angry. But generally, I had a sense that that anger was kind of not present at the moment because conditions were good for me at that time. And that it wouldn't actually take that much somebody looking at me funny or the computer breaking down. It doesn't take much before that anger flares up. So this is the the underlying tendency is kind of those those ruts in our mind or if you think of it neurologically, the, the patterns of neurons in our minds that maybe they're not being fired at the moment 
but might not take too much for something to trigger that pattern off. Let's kind of think of the, the patterns in our neural circuits, almost like these underlying tendencies. Maybe not active all the time, but there as a possibility. So that's the most subtle kind of defilement. Now the Buddha's teaching addresses all of these layers. Not just the layers that come out into our behavior and into our own minds, but actually this underlying layer as well. And the Eightfold Path, each of the sections of the Eightfold Path, each of the three sections of the Eightfold Path, path addresses one of these layers of defilement. So the ethical aspect of the Eightfold Path addresses the most obvious layer, the layer in which we act out. When we are committed to engaging with wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, committed to refraining from acting out, This supports us to not engage with the defilements that impel us to act unskillfully. So this aspect of the training supports us to let go of those bodily and verbal unskillful actions. So the ethical aspect of the path counters the tendency towards, the term is transgression, acting out of. In a way, we can kind of use the precepts as a mindfulness bell. If we find ourselves, you know, getting ready, getting ready to like hit a spider on the wall, you know, it's like, wait a minute, no, I'm engaging in the precepts here. Let me use one of those bug catchers instead and Take it out of the room. The mental cultivation aspect of the Eightfold Path, I think, also counters this tendency towards the acting out because we, we see, we begin to see the arising of these qualities in our mind we begin to see, oh, there's anger coming up. And the very seeing of that unskillful mind state arising, we begin to have a choice about whether to act on it or not. So the mental cultivation, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, also supports not acting out of defilements. The seeing of the defilement as it arises in our mind gives us the choice. We turn towards the experience instead of acting on it. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration also counters the tendency towards these qualities arising in our minds. We cultivate concentration. And as we cultivate concentration, we begin to feel the bliss of not having the hindrances arise. Concentration 
holds the hindrances at bay, the qualities of ill will, of sense desire, of sloth and torpor, of restlessness, of doubt. As the mind moves into concentration, these qualities stop arising in our minds. So this counters the arising of these defilements in our minds. This feels really good. And it's temporary. Those underlying tendencies are not necessarily uprooted by simply resting in concentration. It puts us in a state where they're not active, but it doesn't necessarily alter the terrain underneath. So the subtlest levels of defilement, these underlying tendencies, this is where the wisdom aspect of the path comes in. It really takes a radical shift of understanding to begin to loosen those underlying tendencies. And this fundamental shift, this shift of perspective, doesn't come just through thinking about the Four Noble Truths, reflecting on, well, this is dukkha, this is what I did, and this is how it felt, and what I did last week, and, well, maybe I should try this. It takes meeting dukkha, seeing the cause, allowing the release. It takes a direct experience. So effort, mindfulness, and concentration create the possibility. It creates the ground out of which, from, from which wisdom can grow. And that wisdom begins to uproot these underlying tendencies. So the, these underlying tendencies are deeply connected with ignorance. Not understanding. Our usual definition of ignorance is something like a lack of knowledge, that we don't have some bit of information, you know? A kind of a passive state of just not knowing something. The ignorance that underlies greed, aversion, delusion is much more insidious than that, than just simply not knowing something. It's actually an active misunderstanding of reality. We're walking through the world actively misunderstanding, misperceiving, mis interpreting experience through filters of perception we misperceive the world three primary misunderstandings we take what's impermanent to be permanent we take what is unreliable to be reliable as a place where we could actually find happiness. And we take what is not self to be self.
So as we train the mind, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, we begin to see these, these misunderstandings begin to be, little holes get poked through these misunderstandings. We begin to see at certain times that experience, there's no way experience is permanent. It is continually flowing and changing. There's nothing in our experience that could possibly be reliable because it's just like sand slipping through our fingers all the time. Things don't even last for a moment. Because they don't last, they are inherently unreliable. We start to see this directly for ourselves. This begins to undercut those misperceptions, those misunderstandings. We take what is not self to be self. We misunderstand, we misperceive our own experience to be an enduring entity that has control over itself. And yet when we start to look at what we think of this enduring entity is, we start to look at that, we see that doesn't last either. You know, look at what you are exp- experiencing as me. You'll find it doesn't last very long. We go through so many different iterations of me in a day. And we begin to see that they actually have very little relationship to each other. One time on retreat, this seeing of how different selves have no relationship to each other in, in a moment became very clear to me. I was doing walking meditation in front of the retreat center here and uh, was replaying in my mind a scene from the morning question and answer period and was having an argument in my mind with this person that was asking questions. And I was noticing this. I, I, I could see, and I was, boy, I was suffering over this too. <laughs> this was not pleasant. I could really feel the identity around this. And, and the identity was really coalesced around being right. I was right. I was, I was intelligent. I was analytical. I was argumentative. I was right. All of that. I could feel all of that. And I was experiencing it, noticing it, recognizing it. Saw no way out of it, but just was experiencing it. And then as things happen, conditions change. You know, I was doing the walking meditation and a truck drove up. A big delivery truck that made a lot of noise. Banged and crashed and door slammed and brakes brakes squealed. And in a split second my mind shifted and it said something like, it's a truck. Oh my gosh, it's a truck. And the feeling was like I became a (laughs) two-year-old. I was just reveling in the joy of truck. (laughs) 
that moment. I mean, it was just like, there was no relationship between those two selves. It became very clear. So explore what you take to be self. You'll see it doesn't endure. So the path We start with understanding, taking in knowledge, taking in teachings, begin to apply them, seeing some for ourselves, this wisdom, seeing some of the truth of the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience. We see that for ourselves. The wisdom begins to become internalized. And yet, these insights, too, are often impermanent. We find ourselves in a space of understanding. We see thoughts arise in our mind, and we recognize these are just thoughts. These have no bearing on anything, really. They're just thoughts arising and passing. There's experience coming and going. We, we, we find ourselves in a space where we're not getting caught by things. Somebody jumps ahead of us and, and gets the last little bit of carrot in the salad. And it's like, oh, look at that. Wow. Impermanence. We're in that space for a while. And then... Maybe a day later or even a few minutes later, something else happens and it's not there anymore. When, it's, when we're in that space, it can seem so obvious. It's just like, how can I not see this? How can I not recognize that how the mind creates its own suffering? How can I not see this? It's so obvious. And yet, moments later, conditions change and it is no longer so obvious. This is not, doesn't have to be a problem. It's not a mistake. It is a change of conditions. And there is a way in which that wisdom has gone in. We've seen things from a different perspective. We have experienced it from a different perspective. And so we can now begin to recognize when we are not seeing it from that perspective. And we recognize, it's kind of like we've seen things clearly. It's like we recognize, yeah, that's what white is. That's what white looks like. And then we begin to see when we're not in that space where things are flowing easily. It's like, oh, this is off-white, or this is gray even. Or... So we begin to recognize that we're carrying misperception. We're carrying ignorance. We're carrying delusion with us. Sometimes people ask me, how can you see delusion? 
partly you can start to see it as you move into these spaces of clarity. When you move back into a space of delusion, you now can see the difference. You now can recognize, yeah, the mind is operating from a place of delusion right now. Okay, let me watch this. Let me take care here. I know that the mind tends to get caught when it's in this kind of space. So let me watch. So it's not necessarily a problem. It's not a problem when we just have to continue. We continue, we continue, we continue. We engage with this path. When we've seen impermanence, unsatisfactoriness at a deep level, it gets easier to see through those those misperceptions. So living this path, exploring how to live this path, supports us to move towards that freedom, first in little moments. And then the promise, the the direction the Buddha says this heads, this is like slanting, sloping towards the sea, this path leading towards freedom, leading towards Nibbana in this very life. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.